Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about the senses. I will, of course, first define them and then talk about how to understand our senses and their impact on us. So welcome. We humans have five senses, hearing, taste, touch, vision, and smell. The word sense comes from the Latin sensus, meaning perception, feeling, meaning, and from sentira, meaning to perceive, to feel, and know. The import of our senses is vital to our survival and ability to thrive. The way we become interested in the world is through our senses. What we hear, see, smell, taste, and touch, and experience through movement, has profound effects on our development physically, emotionally, and psychologically. And the language of our senses, both within ourselves and as we interact with others and the outside world, is paramount in all areas of our lives. My dear friend Rebecca Doring, a healer in her own right, has joined me for today's topic. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I am curious to hear what you have to say about the five senses. How do they relate to transformational therapeutics? Well, I think for starters, our experience of the world comes through our senses. And I see that what we experience through those senses as forms of language. So hearing, you hear things, tasting, smelling, touching. The way your baby becomes interested in the world is through his senses. It's what he hears and sees and what he experiences through his sense of movement. That's how we all start out. So they are the actual way that we receive information. And I see it as a form of language. A form of language that develops very early, I imagine. I imagine even in the womb and some with some of them, correct? Correct. It's interesting, the first sense, if you don't mind me going into this, to develop in the womb is touch. At less than six weeks old in utero, the sense of touch is developed. And the fetus has no eyes or ears at that point. But they've done experiments and shown that the embryo responds when the skin is stimulated. And Ashley Montague wrote a book called Touching, which is just fabulous. And he talks about the skin being regarded as the exposed portion of our nervous system. And touch is the first sense to develop and the last one to leave. And if you look at how we describe different senses and sensations, just in terms of touch, there are metaphors. We use the term losing touch. And when we talk about things like our feelings, we say something touches us or people are touchy. And the word touche means I have been touched in fencing. The word touche comes from that, that you've been touched. And we use words like untouchable, rubbing somebody the wrong way. Someone is abrasive. We talk of a personal touch. Someone is tactful or tactless. The sense of touch is known as a tactile sense. That means to touch. And the word touchstone reminds us of all the phrases that are metaphors for the security that comes with touch. So touch, our skin, and actually our fascia, which is a whole other subject, but skin is a form of fascia, is really the largest organ in our body. It's how we receive all kinds of information. It's really the one sense we cannot do without. You can live without being able to hear, you can live without being able to see or taste or smell, 
but without being able to feel your body and where it is in space, you're not going to survive. How would that affect if someone, if they lose their sense of touch in some part of their body? Well, you can lose it in large portions of your body. You could lose it in your legs. You could be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. You don't know where you are in space. You don't know where you are moving through space. Right. And you could just imagine different areas that, I mean, if you lost it in an area that was being stimulated in intimate relationships, that would have an impact. Mm -hmm. You lost your sense of taste, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. But your tongue had to be touched by food. Were you able to feel the touching of the food, but Mm -hmm. you couldn't sense the taste of it? I shifted from wanting to have texture of food instead of flavor and smell because I wanted to receive something that I was craving. And can you imagine not being able to feel it on your tongue at all? Right. No. And actually, our digestive system from the mouth down is actually our outer skin is turned inward. And so we feel... We take in food and nourishment and we feel it go down our throat and down and through. And so without that feeling, if you don't have sensation in your throat, you can't really swallow properly. So it's really important. Right. So many ways. The other part that I just find fascinating is how much information is communicated in touch. Other sense organs like your eyes or your mouth or your ears are specific, but touch is everywhere on our body. So it's really global and really important in terms of information being communicated. That's so interesting, given that we're kind of moving away from shaking hands. But shaking hands was such a thing that only you and that person could get that information. And that was all through touch. It could look like a great handshake from the outside, but feeling it is such such an exchange of information. And they've done studies where... They've taken people like a waitress and calculated tips according to whether or not the waitress just gently touched someone when they were giving them the bill. And the increase in the tip is unbelievable. And the diner doesn't even realize it. Hmm. So touch is really powerful across the board. They did studies years ago with infants, infant chimps, I think it was, where they took them away from the mother and used a wire mother or one that had lamb's wool on it. And the babies migrated and went toward the lamb's wool one. And there was early on in in the 19th century, I believe, maybe the 20th century, the New York Foundling Hospital, they didn't touch the orphans and many of them died from lack of touch. It's also shown that massaged babies gain weight as much as 50% faster than unmassaged babies. They're more active, alert, and responsive. They're more aware of their surroundings, better able to tolerate noise and orient themselves faster and are emotionally more in control. They're better able to regulate and self-soothe. I mean, you self-soothe yourself with touch, but first you learn it from your caregiver. And early deprivation of touch influences heart rate, body temperature, brainwave patterns, sleep patterns, and immune system function. It also causes brain damage which is often displayed as aberrant behavior. And just hearing all this information and thinking about the year 2020 and how so many of us were cut off from sense of touch, some people altogether, but everyone had lost even just the general stranger to stranger, waitress to diner touch now that we're all six feet apart. 
Well, I think it has a massive impact. I'm not sure how it will pan out, but it's massive. As a culture, you know, you look at we're American, but in other cultures, they oftentimes touch much more than we do. It's just fascinating to me. And, and as a manual therapist, I touch people. That's what I do for a living. The people I've worked with you know, across the board, particularly young children with handicaps, really touch is one of the best ways to get to them and get to their brains and get to their central nervous system. So that's, that's the first one to come on board and to me the most important. Right, and the last one to, to leave. leave. Yeah. So if, if a person is dying and you may think that they don't really hear you, they don't really see you, they can still feel you if your hand is on their hand. Absolutely. And there's a group in England where they do, I'm not sure if it's here also, where they massage terminal patients' feet. Because you have so many receptors in different areas of your body. And if you know where the receptors are concentrated, you can focus there. Hmm. But touch is really, really profound. How do you use this information with transformational therapeutics? Well, I see it as a language. So the language of touch like you said, when you shake someone's hand, you get a lot of information just from shaking their hand, whether it's soft or firm or floppy or wet or dry. And these are things we don't even realize are being transmitted to our brains. These are the quiet, silent languages that we aren't necessarily aware of that are really important. Bottom line is we're animals. We learn from each other on very unconscious levels. It's a way to connect I mean, you would think back to the podcast about connection. It's a really important way to connect. It's a way to give messages. Yeah, you can have cruel touch or gentle touch, all kinds of touch. And it's our vehicle is made for it, our vehicle being our bodies. Right, right. So to me, it's vital. Yeah. Well, and I imagine the possibilities of using touch and transformational therapeutics to heal and move forward and grow and learn about yourself and the world around you is nearly endless. Just thinking about even if you feel like you are someone who shies away from touch, like why is that? If you're someone who really gravitates towards touch and you know why, why is that? Absolutely. I mean, I have a friend who doesn't like to be hugged. It's like, where does that come from and why? And as I've told you in other stories, I've used it to regulate kids that I've worked with because in touch itself, you release the hormone oxytocin, which is a calming hormone. It just has so many benefits if it's done well. Right, right. And it can be abusive also. It just depends. It's a really powerful tool for communication. It's a form of language. Absolutely. Wow. What about the other senses? So another sense is smell. And it's really, I found this so interesting. You can't really use images to describe smell. So it's really described in terms of other things like smoky or musty or fruity. True. And we also describe how smells make us feel like disgusting or sexy or old or good. Or they remind us of something that we've smelled in the past, a situation. And the nerves of smell, there's one major nerve that goes from your nose up into your brain. It's one nerve where the smell is transmitted. 
it goes to the most primitive part of your brain. And that's why you can be walking past someone and get a whiff of something that you smelled 30, 40 years ago and and that connection. Absolutely. It's so powerful. You can be taken back like that. Exactly. (laughs) So again, that to me is a form of language. Hmm. How so? Could you talk about that a little bit more? Well, it's a silent form, like someone will walk into the room and maybe have a perfume on that I don't like, and that's going to set me up. I'm going to have a different viewpoint of that person. Or they come in with a perfume that I love. Or they don't wash, they don't bathe, and they smell funny. It's a form of information to me. It's communication about someone or about a situation. And also smell in ourselves if we have like a decayed tooth or... It also has a lot to do with taste, which I'll get to in a minute, but smell and taste are intimately connected. I just find that it's really important. Sure. I remember hearing, if you think someone who is sweating smells good to you, then like you're attracted to their pheromones and that might mean that you you could be potential good mates. Do you know anything about yes, that? Yes, there's some good science behind that. And they've they've shown that people who say they can't smell pheromones actually can. So, so it's a really deep, pheromones are a, a deep unconscious connection mm. that we're, we're just not aware of, but absolutely. It's so interesting being around people when I was a massage therapist. Some people would be like, wow, this person smells so good. And other times would be like, this person does not smell good, but for no reason that I could describe it. They probably do smell fine, but it's not like they smell dirty or whatever, but just something about it was like, we would not be good mates. And, and these are such primitive senses that they're really important brain-wise. They go to the most primitive areas of our brain. Hmm. So yes, I think they're vital. And you find out when you lose like the sense of taste or smell or hearing how important they are. And what happens in the brain is if you lose one sense, the brain will take over that area and increase another. So blind people are often really good at hearing because the visual centers aren't working. And so they are taken over by the hearing centers. So the brain's really pretty smart. Mm -hmm. Sure. And the sense of taste. Every culture uses food as a sign of approval or commemoration. If an event is meant to matter emotionally or symbolically, food will be close at hand to sanctify it. That's how we see food. It often has symbolic meaning in ritual. You know, think of if you're Catholic and doing communion, what is the symbolic meaning of that wafer? And it's interesting, the word taste comes from the Latin word to touch. I love that. That's amazing. And so people, we talk about people, they have taste. They have good taste or bad taste. Mm -hmm. You chew the fat with somebody. We earn our daily bread. We're worth our salt. So we use food analogies and metaphors all the time. Absolutely. Wow. And I think we don't really realize the impact. It's really fundamental and and profound. Right. We use our sense of taste as even forms of comfort and nourishment and numbing and many, many other things. And I think particularly comfort and soothing, self-soothing. Right. And there is all kinds of symbolic attributes. For instance, sugar, the craving for sugar is really the craving for the mother. 
And so there are different things like that. And the different tastes like fat and sour, and it, they impact us differently, but we all know what they mean. And usually across the board, fat and sweet are very comforting. Mm, for sure. In our culture anyway. Right. So we use these senses to, to comfort ourselves. You had said that you wanted to talk more about the combination or the, the link between sense of smell and sense of taste. I once went to a, a class on the different senses, and the one that I remember clearly was the sense of taste. And there were scientists lecturing, and they passed around a bowl of Jelly Belly jelly beans. We ate them. I took a handful, I have to admit. It was a large <laughs> audience. And then they had us pinch our nose closed, and you couldn't taste the jelly bean flavor. So without smell, your taste is really transformed. Yes. The two go together. We did that experiment at a culinary school, and they had us first plug our nose and describe what we tasted just with our tongue. And you could get sweet, you could get acidic, you could get salty if there happened to be salty if you had the buttered popcorn jelly belly. And then they had us let our noses go and immediately you get hit with the flavor. And so we did it with gummy bears too. It's such a fun experiment. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's hearing. And the word hearing comes from a root word, which means to perceive by ear. And the first sound for all of us is our mother's heartbeat in the womb that measures our lives. I mean, that is our first metronome is in the womb. After birth, we hear voices, we hear sounds, we hear music. All of these things are brought in by our ears. And we say to each other, listen to that voice inside of you. So again, there are the metaphors for hearing. In actual verbal language, I found this so fascinating. 70% of what we hear is prosody. And prosody is the tone of the language, not the words themselves. Hmm. So the tone of the language that you hear has much more of an impact than the actual words and an immediate impact. So knowing that, it's really incumbent upon us when we're speaking verbally to monitor the tone of our language because that will have much more of an impact than the actual words themselves. Could you have a aversion or even a preference for certain tones? Like specifically, just thinking about like if I'm if I'm in a conversation with someone and their tone reminds me subconsciously of a tone that was taken when I was a child in a negative way. And immediately I'm brought back to that and I'm not even fully aware of it that right away then I'm responding in a much more heated way, I suppose I could say, than I would have had I not had that association. Absolutely. Absolutely. The early, early learning of tone will influence us for the rest of our lives. If you're yelled at a lot or if even if you're quiet, quietly corrected, and that also has an impact on your emotional system. And different voices, I'm not sure where it comes from early on. Some voices are really soothing. Some are jarring. But music, it, it just, it all goes straight to the basic areas in your brain that have to do with regulation and comfort. Mm -hmm. 
That's why we listen to beautiful music when we want to calm ourselves or why we listen to more raucous music when we want to get jazzed up or vice versa. I was going to ask you what your thoughts are if someone's favorite music is a more intense kind of music, like heavy metal or something like that. Do you think that's a message or a language in itself that you'd be drawn to something like that? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think everything is a language. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that I don't know the person, but I think that it, it indicates a nervous system that is somewhat jarred or wanting to be activated one or the other. Hmm. I, I see a lot of things in terms of the nervous system. You know, calming music is the nervous system wanting to be calmed. I mean, you could look at the emotions behind it. It could be rage. It could be fun. I don't know. It would depend on their background. Mm. So you're saying that it could be, it could be either extreme. That I, maybe there's something that's been too dormant inside that some part of you is is longing to be able to express anger or excitement, and you've never really had. So you might be drawn to that music, or maybe it's so over, overly so inside overactive that you might be drawn to more jarring music yes either or yeah and you may not think of it as jarring right and it depends on your culture i mean we grew up in american culture there are you know music from the far east that could be considered jarring for us but our music could be considered jarring for them mm, interesting it's how you learned it that matters Right. So if you're also learned it in a deep connection, like if your father shared this music with you, you might have a deeper emotional connection to that music as well. Or less. Or less. Depending on who your father was. True. Yeah. The other part of communication and language that comes on board with hearing is being heard and registration. Someone can hear you talking, but it may not actually register in their brain in a way that they're conscious of it. And that can lead to problems later on. So making sure that whatever is said is registered in the brain of the person who is receiving it. And also being heard by someone is one of the best gifts you can give anyone. So those two things are really important because I've seen in myself People have said, well, I've told you that, and I don't remember. So to me, it, it didn't register at the time. It wasn't important enough for it to register at the time. Mm -hmm. And if there's a lot of emotion attached to the situation, people can put up filters that they're not aware of, unconscious filters, so that it doesn't register. Sure. If it doesn't register, there could even just be reasons that you're not ready to receive that information yet. Some part of you doesn't believe that it's possible to hear that or doesn't believe it. So you don't take it in as truth. Or some part of you is somewhere else and just not attending. Totally. That's when I talk about language and being present in the language. It, it, not only do I mean being present in the language that I'm speaking, but the hearer has to be present in order to receive it. And you can go in and out of presence in a, in a nanosecond. Oh, easily. I feel like probably the majority of the time that people don't hear you is just because they're thinking about something else or they're not right. fully present. Right. Or also, I feel like just because someone wants to share something with you does not mean that you want to listen to something right now. Maybe you're just not in the place where you actually want to be present. And just because somebody wants you to be present doesn't mean that you're going to be. Right. 
And so a true connection is when one is ready to receive the information and one is ready to get it. And also it. when one knows. I mean, I've developed the habit of I'll call someone and I'll say, can you hear me now? Mm. And I'd much prefer it if they say, no, I can't, because yeah. then I'm not going to waste my energy and be disappointed that they're not hearing me. Absolutely. Okay, I'll find somebody who can. I'm very utilitarian. Right. So I oftentimes preface a conversation with, can you hear me now? That's a great question. And I don't... I don't get offended if they can't, because in the long run, it's better for me. I'd rather speak to somebody who can hear me. Yes. And I, I'm pretty sensitive, so I can tell when somebody's tuned out. Right. Even on the phone. So I'll always say, so can you hear me now? I feel like both my husband and I know when there are times when we can both hear each other. And we know when there are times, usually in the mornings and in the evenings, not so much when we're at home just doing our things. But if we happen to be sitting without screens, then, and one of us says something and the other one responds, then it's, okay, the green light, we it's can now, yeah, yeah, now we can talk and we can dissect things and really flesh them and out. And be present with each other. Yeah. yeah. Vision. Vision. Yes, vision. So vision to me is really fascinating. And we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brains. So photons hit the eyeballs and then they travel through the optic nerve to the visual centers in the brain. So it's our, actually our brain that sees. And then we have two tracks. We have, I think, 30 visual centers, but two tracks. One is evolutionarily ancient and one is newer. And the newer pathway in our brain from the eyes is what most of us think of as vision. Like you recognize people or an object or something, you know that that's what you're seeing. The old pathway is involved in locating objects spatially in the visual field, enabling you to reach out for an object. So that's a different pathway than just looking at you. And they've done studies where there's something called visual field neglect that happens sometimes with brain damage. And if I have a left visual field neglect. It means the left side of, I don't see what's happening on the left side of my body. I don't literally see it. And they've done studies where they've had people reach for the ball on your left and the person says, well, I can't see the ball. And they say, reach for it anyway. And these studies have shown that they're 99% accurate getting the ball in a visual field that they cannot see in the way that we think of seeing. Wow. So that's a more ancient path, which I just find fascinating. So that happens because the new visual pathway is damaged and the old one is not. So you still have other means. Although you can't literally see, you couldn't drive with a left visual neglect or field problem, but you could reach and get something in that left field. If someone were to go like legally blind, would that be more in the newer pathway? I would think so. This neurologist named V.S. Ramachandran talks about this, and he says that it suggests that the newer pathway is more conscious, and the older one is sort of unconscious, that you reach for something you're not even aware of it. And that would be if you're driving along, and all of a sudden you've gone five miles, and you're not aware, but you didn't get in an accident, but some part of you was keeping track of where you were in space. Sure. Yeah, we've all done that. Then there's a, another interesting thing that how much culture influences perception. And so I've said that the brain is what sees, not your eyes. And the word perception comes from the Latin percepta, which means to hold on to. So much of what we think we see is actually already in our brains. 
And the culture, Eastern cultures, perceive sort of more holistically, seeing things in relation to each other in context, whereas Westerners perceive them in isolation. So you have an Eastern culture that sees the bigger picture and a Western culture that sees specifics. So just knowing that, going into an interaction between those two cultures should help. It's just fascinating. That's so interesting. Easterners see through a wide-angle lens, and Westerners use a narrow one with a sharper focus. And they've done studies and found that when people change cultures, they learn to perceive in a new way. So all of this is changeable. And our sensory and motor cortexes in our brain, the things that are responsible for perceiving sensation and movement, are always involved in perception. So none of these is separate from the other. They all work in concert. So you can see a piece of cake and have an idea of what it's going to taste like. Or you can hear a loud noise and have a feeling reaction to it, and a sudden reaction to it. So all of these senses are intertwined and work together. Another thing I find fascinating is that all of our electronic devices rewire our brain all of them. And every time you interact with somebody, you're rewiring your brain. The reason they're so effective is because they work in a similar way to the brain itself, and so they're compatible. And the way it works is by instantaneous transmission of electrical signals to make connections. It's the same in a computer as it is in our brain. Mm -hmm. And our computers are actually just an outgrowth of our brains. We've created them from our own brains. So it's interesting what you just shared that all of the senses are intertwined with each other, especially in regards to perception. So as soon as you said that, I was thinking about even snickerdoodle cookies. You smell the cinnamon, you see the, the cookie, you have an idea of what it's going to taste like. You smell the cinnamon, maybe it brings you back to a childhood memory that involved a feeling of being hugged. And that's maybe even a sound of your grandmother's voice or something like that. So is that kind of what you mean, that we can have this instant, just right now I just conjured up an entire memory that involved almost all of my senses just from the concept, the perception of a snickerdoodle cookie. And that's from my experience, not necessarily yours or right. someone else's. And, and you also conjured up the emotions attached to that, mm. which is really important because those emotional centers are in the same area of the brain that the senses are in. So there's a lot of connection to the emotions. The senses are tightly connected to the emotions. Makes total sense. I'll tell you something else that I learned that I just thought was fascinating. That there, um, in the midbrain, there are neurons that are, um, have to do with longing for food. And they've done a study where they've shown that those same neurons long for social interaction. The exact same neurons fire. They did that actually during COVID. They did a study with people. Huh. That makes perfect sense. Why everyone shifted to cooking and eating and getting takeout <laughs> and sharing their recipes because we couldn't socialize. Yeah. Wow. How do you use the five senses in your own personal work with transformational therapeutics? For your own healing? Well, I, I tend to watch them, um, particularly when I'm treating or working with someone, and watch how they're impacted. 
But when I work with kids, my young kids that have problems, neurological problems or not, my intent is to normalize the senses because so many with neurological problems have abnormal sensation. And in my profession, many people don't go deeply into that. I fundamentally believe that absolutely every movement and everything we do starts with the sensation around it. So if you can't feel your foot, it's hard to walk. It's hard to take a step. That's sort of a drastic example, but it's important. And I would work with young children with cerebral palsy or autism or some other diagnosis. I was trying to normalize because I believe as it's growing, the brain and the sensory system, if you can normalize the input, you can normalize the output. Oftentimes a child would resist what I was doing. I tended to not listen so much until I could get more normal reaction from that system, whether it was touch or smell or taste or vision. And vision is so tied in with balance and coordination and that sort of thing. So it was important to me to, to normalize the senses. I don't believe you can get normal movement if you don't have normal sensation. So in that context, I did a lot of things, a lot of touch. There's a diagnosis that is tactile defensive. It means that someone can't tolerate touch. And I've done it actually with my horses too, that you can teach someone to enjoy it over time. Would you have any suggestions for parents with their children? Like if a, their child throws a tantrum or just any other day-to-day -day context that... Well, I think that touch is so important. I once had a friend and she had a house in Jamaica and she said, Jamaican kids don't cry. Babies. And she said that's because they're on their mother's bodies all the time. I believe that a mother's job is to teach the body of a child to regulate itself through her own regulation. And if a child is having a tantrum, they are feeling uncontained. I'm not sure I agree with the timeout philosophy, depending on the age of the child. I found that just by taking a child and hugging it and calming it down, because as I'm doing that, oxytocin is released, it changes their mental state, can reduce a tantrum. That's what I found is the most effective. Touch is a powerful, powerful tool. Wow. You know, even if you had a newborn or an infant, just massaging it as much as you possibly can, it actually affects how they grow, how their brain develops, how smart they are, how their immune system develops. You have so much power as, as a parent. Hmm. In both directions, not doing that, can change development. Absolutely. For the worse. Right. Right. I don't think you can ever touch too much as long as it's you no know, consensual. Right. But yeah, I just think touch is so important. Right. And we're so starved of it in our in our culture. Right. Especially in today's day. And age. babies too. You know, we put them in a in a carriage or a basket or whatever. We don't they're not riding around on us like they are in other cultures. Hmm. So they're not getting that that feeling of security that touch brings. How could I use this information for my own healing and growth, like to start seeing the world through this information? I just add it to my inbox because to me, it's so fascinating about how the brain and the senses work. And then I would watch myself and see what I hear, what I see, what I taste, how do I smell, what feels good, what doesn't. And just start using it like that and how you can communicate it to someone else. 
your tone of voice. There are so many ways. So I um, had a client once, an adult, who was having a really difficult time. And this was before COVID. But I saw that he was, I saw him as a little boy. And so I just put my arm around his shoulder. And it changed the whole interaction. And it wasn't, it was just, just being there for someone. Well, just hearing this information that you've shared is so eye-opening to then see all the senses as different forms of language. And then the combination of various ones of them or all of them together creating. And the impact they have in terms of communication. Right. And what language I'm sending out there that I might not even realize and what language I'm receiving that I might not even realize. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.